Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Well, good morning. Good to be with you again this morning. It's so nice to see Nancy. I haven't seen her in a number of years. It's good to see her again. And I miss seeing Don this morning. Is he not? Oh, he's preaching. Yeah. Um, and I, I suppose I, I can say this now that Don isn't here. <laughs> yes. Uh, the family itself, you know, Don and Janet have been such close friends of ours for, for a number of years, especially while in the years we were at Hiawassa. And I've always, always appreciated Don's ministry. I've always enjoyed listening to him preach and teach the Word of God. Always enjoyed his counsel. In fact, he was the very first one of the elders at Hiawassa that I spoke of, to concerning a, a desire to go serve the Lord in the Philippines back in 1986. And he was very, very encouraging and moved us in that direction. And within a year of that meeting, we were on our way. So I've always, always have good, uh, good thoughts and good memories of, of the Pell family. Turn with me again to First Peter, please. First Peter. I'm only going to read a, a couple of verses, and then at our at the eleven o'clock hour, we'll read the uh, the full uh, portion that we we've been dealing with. If you'll remember from our last time, and we'll use this again as a little introduction going into the the third of the messages. Um, we are looking at how the New Testament writers, and we're using Peter as our example. Um, I did it through the book of Hebrews before, and then we, I moved into the book of 1 Peter, to see how the New Testament writers make use of Old Testament Scripture. Now we recognize, and, we, and we're not going to go through a whole, another whole uh, introduction concerning those basic um, uh, facts concerning the Old Testament Scripture, but we recognize that the writers of the New Testament frequently, every time they quote Scripture out of the Septuagint translation, that they, they go back to use the Old Testament as the foundation and the underpinning for the truths concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and concerning, concerning their teaching. And so we want to look at, try to look at how the New Testament writers employ the passages out of the Old Testament. Now, we did that last week by looking at a couple of allusions. Now, in, in Peter in particular, and in all, just about all of the writings of the New Testament, the, the writers will make allusions to the Old Testament, and then sometimes they'll make direct quotes out of the Old Testament. The allusions can be a bit trickier to, to pin down as to the exact location of them, whereas the direct quotes become much simpler. So we gave you an example last week of illusion, seeing two of them in the first two verses of this epistle. Today, and probably we'll see how far we get today uh, after the 11 o'clock hour, we want to be moving toward the very first quote that we find in, in Peter, and that goes to verse 16. But for this introduction, let's just read 1 Peter 1, and we're going to read 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials at the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I read a little bit more than I said I was going to. It just had to read the whole context and get us down to that spot. So let's pause, just ask the Lord for his help. Father, we pray that your spirit might be leading in our thinking, 
may be leading in our reception of your word and the things spoken about your word. And may they bring glory and honor to you and to your son, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, as many of you are aware, because I often have spoken about it here over the years, I have a fondness of walking through cemeteries. I have a fondness of walking through cemeteries. Now, that, some people don't really enjoy that. I happen to enjoy it. And uh, where I was speaking um, last time, there was another man there who, at Park of the Palms who also enjoyed the same thing. So we were able to commiserate and talk about what we enjoy about walking through cemeteries. I like walking in the quietness of a cemetery because it causes me to reflect once again on the brevity of life. I can walk as the living among the dead. Oftentimes you hear in the, in the horror stories, it's the dead walking among the living. I like as a, as a living being to walk among the stones of the dead. Oftentimes I do odd things. And, and I've told you this before. I, I can look at a name on the old brown stones in particular that you find prevalent in the north, which are the stones that go back to the 1600s and to the 1700s when they had those brown stones, which many of them become very difficult to read at this point. But I, if I can see the name, I have a habit of pronouncing the name out loud. And I do that for this reason. I say to myself, that name has not been heard audibly probably in a hundred years. And it's just a fondness and a remembrance. I enjoyed very, very much, and Joyce knows this, it was a, it's a great memory that we have of going with Ed a couple of years ago to where Phyllis is buried at that military cemetery and walking there and, and just having a chance to visit where Phyllis was laid to rest, her, her physical body, and walking over to where Dave Vandernoot was buried, and to be able to have memories of the living, memories of their lives. And it, it, it always inspires me to remember the past, to remember and help me to focus on uh, the brevity of the life that we have. Now, many of the old tombstones, as I've told you before, on the bottoms, they have these engravings that are there. And oftentimes the engravings have these, have these cute little catchy phrases that they've written down. And you see them on a variety of them, and I'm not going to repeat them to you because you've heard them be from my lips before. But t- oftentimes they are warnings to the living who are reading the tomb. Warnings to the living to remind them that you are coming to where I am. You are coming to the grave where I am now laying. And oftentimes on those old gray uh, brown stones, you find warnings to the living who are passing by. Now on a tombstone, often on several tombstones, so I am told because I've never been there to actually read them myself, in uh, In the ancient world of the apostles, in the time of the Greco-Roman period, many of the stones had this phrase on it. Many of the stones said this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Imagine. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. I hope that those are not the kind of things that summarize our lives. Because between the time of I became, we had a transformation in our lives as we met the Lord Jesus and we are changed. And now our future is not, I don't care. (laughs) Our future is that of glory. And we look forward. And we have within us a happiness and a desire. Now, reading from our daily bread, this goes back to the December issue, I think back in 1990-something. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact date, so you can't go back in your, our daily bread file and find it. But it's a, it is a, they ask this question. Is there hope when hope is taken away? 
Is there hope when the situation appears hopeless? And then he answered it this way. Those questions lead us to Christian hope. For in the Bible, hope is no longer a promise or a passion for the possible. It becomes a passion for the promise. It is no longer a passion for what might be possible. It is a passion for the promise and the reality of what we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is where the hope rests for us who know Him as our Savior and our Lord. True hope is an expectation that burns within us. True hope is an expectation of what will be in time. It will come. At a fixed position in time, it, the day will come and the hour will come. And our hope is fixed. Our passion is fixed on the promise. On the promise. I suppose we could ask a simple question. And so I'll ask it because I'm simple. I'm simple. Do you live your life in view of the promise? Do you live your life in view of the promise? For this life is temporary and it's fleeting fast, isn't it? And the older you get, the faster it seems to go. But that does not put us in any kind of despair. It just means I'm a step closer to home. I'm a step closer to home. Fixing our eyes on glory. We remember that Peter, when he wrote this epistle, they were facing some difficult times. And we mentioned this last week. They were facing some hard persecution times. They had been forced out of their own land. They'd been forced to live in these, this area as exiles. And they were facing persecution. They were facing hardships. They were facing the kind of persecution or hardship that comes from just being a foreigner in a foreign land. Dealing with all of those things. And Peter writes to them to encourage them. He writes to them to give them a sense of hope. We talked earlier how peace isn't really an emotion, nor is hope really an emotion, but yet you sense it and you feel it, don't you? So, so we may not call it an emotion, but boy, hope can stir your soul. Hope can spring passion in your heart, just as peace can. The absence of conflict in your, in your soul, because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the absence of fear and worry over the next step. Fear and worry over the grave. Because He has cast out that fear. And we have hope that is burning within us. It is already quarter till, and so we must stop. So we didn't actually get through all of the introduction for the next message, but we'll pick it up later on. So I guess I'll just turn it back over to Lily. Back to 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read now all the way through from verse 3 to our main verse, which we'll see if we get there or not this week, but to the main verse, the quote, the very first quote that comes in verse 16. But let's read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. For now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, once again we pause in your presence just to ask for your help. We recognize that handling your word is an awesome responsibility, and we pray that your spirit would guide our thinking, we would guide uh, those who hear to be able to receive the things that are spoken, that you would take what you want spoken today, what you want shared today, what you want to be implanted in the hearts, be, be done for your will and for your glory. For we recognize that if that does not take place, nothing of eternal value will happen this morning. So we pray for your Spirit's work. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter, as we saw last time, is pointing them ahead. He's pointing them beyond their current circumstances, beyond what they are going through, the circumstances and the difficulties that they are facing in their own personal existence. He's pointing them beyond that to another fixed point in time. He's pointing them continually, and you'll notice that as you, read, as you listen to it being read and you're reading along with me, you noticed over and over again that he consistently pointed them ahead. He pointed them to a fixed time that is yet to come as encouragement, a time when the Lord shall come in power, a time when the Lord Jesus will be revealed to the world, a time of revelation that will come when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And we'll see that as we go along, time permitting. To Peter, when he wrote it, in his mind, these times were imminent. He believed it could happen at any time. Even though he had the, the background of Old Testament Scripture, the background of the prophecies of the Old Testament, he believed that the Lord could return at any moment to set up His kingdom again. Again, to set up His kingdom on this earth. And to reign over this earth. To be revealed to the people of Israel. That they would see Him, that they would look upon Him whom they have pierced and believe and be saved in a time that was coming. Their hope is to be set firmly, He tells them, on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Putting your faith, putting your hope firmly on the grace that is to be brought to you. So he begins this little section, which is all leading us up now to the quote. You remember from last week that when we went back to Exodus chapter 24 to see where those allusions were coming from in those first two verses, we remember we went back to Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, the issue that was primary was the obedience of the people of God. The people of God at the Mount Sinai said, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And they repeated it three times. They repeated it once in chapter 19. Whatever the Lord says, we will do. 
Twice in chapter 24, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And they entered into this covenant, if you will, with the Lord. And you remember that the, the offerings were made, the peace offering was made, peace offerings were made, and the blood was sprinkled on the altar, and the blood was sprinkled on the people. And they had fellowship with the God of heaven. They saw the God of glory, it tells us. They saw God, and they ate and they drank. And God did not reach out His hand and slay them. Because of the sacrifice that had been applied to them, they could approach and have fellowship with the living God. But it was, again, going back to the sealing of a covenant that was made with them. You said that you would obey all the words that I have spoken to you. You said you would obey all the words that Moses now has read to you. The issue goes to this issue of obedience. And these verses now... In the, in the early part of, of Peter's first epistle, are now leading us back to that issue of obedience, based on what he has already alluded to in the first two verses. So let's, let's explore them just briefly. And we'll, we're going to move through this section, looking at it as it's leading us on to the first quote. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A simple statement. It's a statement that we read over and over again in Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize, as students of the Word of God, which all of you are, that the blessed is an adjective. And it's an adjective that's describing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it, it, so it's describing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it happens to be a verbal adjective. You didn't need to know all that, but it's good for you to know. And that means that it is, it is saying the word blessed has this idea of speaking well of. Speaking well of, or, or speaking honorably of. It even can have this idea of speaking adoration to. Or typically, in some of the translations, it would be praise be given to. And that's the idea. To be, he's, he's making a call out to blessed be, speaking well of, be those who are speaking well of, praise be given to, adoration be given to, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes when we read those verses, we do not pause to give adoration to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it would be a good exercise for us. I probably should give some social distancing here. To, <laughs> since my, all this stuff's coming out of my mouth. You know? We should pause probably and give some sort of acknowledgement to this God of whom we are speaking well of. You, you remember that that word... Blessed is, is the word from which we get our word eulogy. Now, we don't want to be those who are taking ancient words and reading into them modern ideas. You know, because they, but it, but this, way, this time it fits. Because a eulogy is to speak well of someone who is dead. And I've shared this before here, and I know I have, because it's, it's an illustration that I've oftentimes used. You, you may have, you may go to a funeral sometime, and you'll know the individual who's, who's passed away, who's up in the coffin. And maybe it's an open coffin, maybe it's a closed coffin. But you know the guy. And you say to yourself, he was one miserable guy. He never had a pleasant word to say to anybody. He always was critical of everything anybody. Nobody liked him. And then someone gets up. He was the most wonderful person. He was a friend to all his neighbors. His neighbors loved him. And you're sitting there thinking, who is he talking about? But that's what a eulogy does. It speaks well of the dead. Here we're speaking well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing, nothing that you can think of, that you can recite, that you can say that is anything but good. Good. There's that little song out, and, and I don't know any of the words of the song except for the phrase that goes, He is a good, good Father. And He is he is a good, good God. And we should be those of His people who pause when we read these words and just for a moment give adoration to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us on. And of course, we recognize, we saw this last week as well, that Christ is also an adjective. So it's describing, the, it's describing Jesus as the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is the anointed one. It describes Him and it becomes a, a title for Him. And it becomes even a pronoun, if you will. 
add it now in a day in which we live to be also a name of Christ, he is, or the Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's describing who he is. He is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is Jesus the Christ. And then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who according to his abundant mercy, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. And any of the, right, the readers of this who had come to know Christ as their Savior and had their lives transformed and they became new creations in Christ, they had been born again. And as Peter would say later on, they were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed through the Word of God. They were begotten again. Begotten again. Now, when we think of the word begotten, when we think of this word begotten, we, have, we understand what it means. We understand that it can also have related meanings. Typically, the most common way to think of begotten is the natural begetting of a husband and a wife, a husband and a wife. And so they have a union together and it produces a child and that one who is born is begotten of the father, the physical father. So he comes into this world. That one who is born into the world because of the union between a mother and a father, has characteristics that are very similar to the one who produced them, don't they? They will often have physical characteristics that will look very similar, and someone will, someone will say, oh, it looks just like her mother. They often say that of our, of our granddaughter, Anna, who looks very much like our daughter, Abby, and people will look at it and say, oh, there's a mini-me. They look just like each other. And personality-wise, they're very similar. And you can see that in, the, in your children who are being raised up in a house. They'll be very, very different souls, very, very unique beings, yet they will carry on characteristics that come from the father and mother. We, today in modern days, we call it their DNA. They have DNA that comes from their father. And you can trace the DNA. You can see the DNA that it matches. They've been begotten. Now we also recognize that begotten is used sometimes metaphorically and has the idea of converting to a different life, converting to a different style of living, converting to a different thinking. The Jews often used it that way, of someone who converted. So let's take it now, and we're going to look at it just... I'm going to, I don't want to use up my whole time looking at this. I, I always hesitate to even say this because it almost sounds irreverent, but I, I will say it anyway. And you can say I'm irreverent if you want, but we are begotten again. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. We have been begotten of the Father. We now as new creations in Christ, carry about in us, if you will, the DNA of the Father who begot us. We have within us the Spirit of the Holy God who dwells within us. We were joking last night about, about a, a gentleman we know, dear friend, who one day posed the question, what is the difference between everlasting life and eternal life? What's the difference? Is there a difference? And we recognize, well, in, in the original, it's like the same word. So how do you, how do you differentiate between the two? Because, because we're dealing with translations now. And he simply put it this way. This was, this was kind of, I don't want to say the word funny. That didn't sound right. Um, anyway, I'll say it. He said, well, you were born into this world... And at a point in time, you received Christ as your Savior. And from that point on, you have life that will live forever. But, of course, we already know that your life is going to live forever anyway, which just depends on where you're going to live it. But, but it talks about you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he has made you alive in Christ, and you have everlasting life. Eternal life 
is life that has no beginning and has no end. So he said, how is it that you possess eternal life? Because the Spirit of God dwells within you and He is eternal. Now, that's arbitrary, isn't it? <laughs> and you would say to yourself, okay, I see it. Uh, can you show me verse that would confirm that? Sanctified imagination, my brother. Sanctified imagination. And that was a different brother, but I won't go into that either. But there is a sense that now we carry within us characteristics of the God who bought us because His Spirit dwells within us. And what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? What is His end game, if you will? To create in us the image of the Son of God. To create in us the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that His desire is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And He's moving us in that direction as we are yielding ourselves, as we are learning, as we are growing, as we are maturing and being stretched out. He's seeking to conform us to the image of the Son of God. Because one day, after this time is done, and one day when He creates a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will permanently dwell, it will be populated by men and women that are just like His Son. Just like His Son. Because when this life is over, we will be like Him. Now, that doesn't mean we'll, still have, we'll have all the characteristics of the Son of God, because He is God. And we are men who are transformed. But He is God. So, begotten again, we have now been begotten again. And it is towards a living hope. It is towards a living hope. And that living hope is the idea of something that is real and tangible. It is alive. It is alive within us. It is that passion for the hope. Passion for the promise. And he tells us, we have been begotten again to a living hope, and it was by means of our through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He lives you too shall live. Because He was the first fruits of resurrection, you too shall raise up. You too shall live. If you die of physically death, physical death, and you end up in the grave someday before the Lord returns, when the time comes, the shout will go, and the dead in Christ will raise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And this mortal will put on immortality, and the corrupt, the incorruption, or corruption will put on incorruption. And we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Because he rose again, we too shall rise again. Begotten again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Joint heirs with Christ. To an inheritance, he says, that is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It does not fade away. It is an inheritance that is incorruptible. It does not decay. Moth cannot get in and eat it up. It is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It's unsoiled. There's not a, a blot on it. And it does not fade away. That word fade away, of course, it's, obviously it's a good translation, isn't it? That we think of things that kind of can disappear with the, with the using. I, I have some nice shirts that I bought. Oh, man, I, I, they were, my wife knows when I get a shirt I like, I wear it all the time. It doesn't matter where, where I'm going. I'm wearing it all the time. She says, are you wearing that thing again? I like this. But eventually it gets to enough washes where it begins to not look quite so good. And it begins to fade, and the color isn't quite as bright as it once was. And I don't care what kind of detergent you used. You see those commercials now, 20 years later. Oh, look, it looks just as good as it did. That doesn't happen. <laughs> it begins to fade, and it just doesn't look as clean as it once did. 
But what we are going to possess, the inheritance that we have that is incorruptible, undefiled, it does not lose its color. It does not fade away. When you have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you're not going to look around one day and say, well, you know, this isn't quite as nice as it used to be. <laughs> it, was, it was really nice when we first got here, but it's just, it's just, losing, its, it's just losing its joy. You know? it's, not, it's just becoming boring now. It's never going to lose its luster. It's never going to lose its beauty and its luster. In all those years, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there'll be no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Sing His grace, sing His praise for when we first begun. We have an inheritance that is not fading away. It's reserved in heaven for you now. Remember where we're going. We're going to that obedience section again. But he's leading us there. It's reserved in heaven for you. And and this idea of reserved means that the word itself has this idea of someone has their eyes on it. They're watching it. They're keeping an eye on it. And it's the sense that what you possess in Christ Jesus, the inheritance that is yours, that is coming... It is being guarded. It is being watched. No one's going to break in and steal it. It's being guarded. It's reserved for you. It's being reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God. Not only is your inheritance reserved, but you yourself are kept by the power of God. And that little word kept again is a word that means to guard. It means to set a garrison around. To have, a, have your, your, you yourself as an individual who has come to know Christ as Savior, you are kept and guarded by the power of God. Now, simple question. What power is greater than the power of God? Do you know of any? Do you know of any power that's greater than the power of God? Well, then this verse speaks of eternal security. Because if you are in the hand of God and you are secured in Christ, if you are kept by His power as one who has truly placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing, nothing is going to be able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. You are His. And you are secure. You are secure. You are kept by the power, the omnipotent power of God. And that was through faith. For salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, now he's not talking about the initial salvation of of that moment we came to know Christ as our Savior and Lord. He's talking about a salvation that is yet coming. There is a deliverance that's yet coming, right? We always we speak of that often. We speak of it. We speak of sanctification in these ways. We speak of salvation in these ways. That we have been delivered from the from the uh, penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We recognize that, and then the same thing is true with sanctification. We have been sanctified. We saw that last week. We are in that fixed position of sanctification. But we are also in life being sanctified by the Spirit of God. He is continually working in our lives, setting us apart unto God. And there's a time when it will be all finished and we'll be with Him in glory. And one of the most beautiful things to my heart, and I don't know if it is to yours, but to my heart is when it is all over and one day we're with Him in glory, I will no longer be able to sin. I will no longer be able to sin. That's a marvelous thing. That's a marvelous hope. Because I know myself. And I'll be glad when it's done. I'll be glad when it's done. We no longer will sin, but will bring Him glory and honor in all that we say and all that we do. And it's ready to be revealed. And when is it ready to be revealed? In the last time. In the last time. Now the last has the, has the idea of the, that last, the fixed position in the, past, in the, in the future. It is, a, it is a specific time. 
And the word time has this idea in it of a fixed time. There is a fixed time that is coming. And we're moving in that direction. We are moving in the direction toward that fixed time. I was sharing with somebody the other day. I forget who I was reading. I I wish I could remember. But I was reading someone the other day. And they were talking about, you don't have the present. What do you mean you don't have the present? I'm living in the present. No, you're not. You're living in the future right now. What do you mean I'm living in the future? Because the present was two seconds ago. You've moved out of the present. You're in the future. You're always looking toward the future. Because the present is going like that. It's going by so quickly. And we understand that when we talk about the present, we're talking about the present age. We're living in a present age. And this age will pass away. But we're all, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, resting and depending on future grace to get us to the next place. We're always depending on the grace that is going to be here tomorrow and the day after and the day after to move us forward. And we're living, looking toward the future with our eyes on the prize, looking to the future. It's very easy, and all of us are guilty of it, it's very easy to get, to get bogged down in present things, isn't it? Especially, you know, we're in a day and age unprecedented in our nation's history. Unprecedented. I mean, you can go back to 1918. Was it 1918? One of those days back then where they had another plague. But it's like we go, we're living in times which are very, very unusual. Very, very different. And people look at them very different ways, don't they? But our eyes are not set on what is here now. And we recognize, I don't care, you, know, you can talk all you want about politics. You can talk about all you want who's the, going to be the president-elect. You can talk all about who's going to be the next president. Who's going to, my faith is not in who's going to be the next president. It's in the God who sits on the throne, who is the one who determines who will be sitting on the president's, in the president's office whenever this is all over. He is the God who is bringing all things to a conclusion that he desires to bring about the end of the age. Do you believe that he's working toward bringing about the fulfillment of all his promises to bring about the end of the age? And if that means the collapse of this country in order to bring it about, even so, come Lord Jesus. So we don't place our faith in those things. Oh, we, we recognize our civil responsibilities and we do that. And we recognize the evil of certain things and policies and we recognize all of that things and we always, always will and always have voted against evil and against evil intents of men. But in the final analysis, we recognize God is still on the throne. He's still on the throne. You believe that, don't you? Amen. You believe that? He's on the throne. So, He will be revealed in a time that is to come. And this, is, this, it's, this word... Reveal is that word which means to uncover something that was previously hidden. So it has this idea, and it's really speaking of, it's that word from which we get the word apocalypsis. It's not the, it's not the uh, parousia, but it's the apocalyptus. So it has this idea of the end time, which is the scripture usually talks about when he talks about the revelation of Christ. It is that end time when Christ reveals himself to the world, and he comes in glory. It's not really so much speaking about, and you, could, you can argue the point, if you'd like, of, of the time of the rapture when we will be caught up to be with him, but talking about a time that's even beyond that to the time when he will be revealed to the world, and you will come with him. And in that day, he will reveal to all, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in a day that is to come. And he appears to be speaking of a day of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what is it that you're rejoicing? You're rejoicing not in the inheritance. That's not what you're rejoicing in. Specifically, you're rejoicing here in the last time. You're rejoicing in the fact that he's coming again. You're rejoicing in the fact that He will come and He will set things straight. He will reign. He will rule. He will be revealed. And in that you rejoice. You rejoice. But we live in times right now. 
and we're going through hardships right now. And it doesn't mean that those hardships now are easy because all of a sudden you have your minds focused on things that are yet to be, that the realities of life are still hard. And Peter recognized that. The realities of life are hard. Sickness and death is hard. Mourning and weeping is hard. But beyond that, we have hope. Beyond that, we have hope. So, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. And you, know, you notice the phrase that follows it is interesting. If need be. For a little while, if need be, you are being grieved by various trials. So here we are. We are grieved by various trials. And it's always been so. It's not like we are the first generation to have to deal with hardships. Every generation has had to deal with its own hardships, its own trials, its own times of testing, its own times of of, uh, difficult situations that cannot be remedied. So he says, for this little time, and so it is a little time, I, I remember using this illustration here. In fact, I was just talking with, was it Dennis? I was just, yeah, I was just talking with Dennis. And we were going back to C.S. Lewis's illustration. You remember C.S. Lewis's illustration of the sheet? I think, I'm trying to remember what book it was in. It may, it may have been in Mere Christianity. Anyway, it was, it was one of these things where he said, imagine a sheet that goes as high as you can see, as far as you can see, in every direction, a clean white sheet that goes as far as you can see in every direction. And then take a pen and make a dot in the middle. That is life. This is eternity. And then he would go on to say, I believe it was him that went on to say, might have been the writer of the book who was quoting him, I can't remember, but he went on to say, are you living for the dot? Or you're living for eternity that is to come. But we all live in the dot. (laughs) We are there. And that's just the reality of it. But what is our heart saying? What is our heart's passion? What is our heart's passion? So for a little while, if it's necessary, if the need be, and the need is determined by by the Lord, you have been grieved. You have been made full of sorrow, is the meaning of it. You've been full of sorrow. You know, we've, we've been sorrowing over the last weeks. It's, it's amazing, this is, as this pandemic thing goes on and on, more people that we actually know now are, are dealing with severe conditions brought about by the, by the virus. Now, they may have had pre-existing conditions. They may not have. And you, and you see a man like Rand, Randy Amos is all of a sudden gone. And my, my niece is, has been having such a struggle just trying to breathe. A family, Karen Meisner family from the Bahamas, was writing that all three of her daughters are, have COVID and are just struggling, struggling. And it becomes real. It becomes real being grieved, being sorrowful over the struggles that happen in this life. And we have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, that the genuineness of your faith, and that word genuineness, as you know, and probably some of your translations, if you have a different translation than mine, talk about the approved nature of your faith. The approved nature of your faith. It is an approval of your faith. That, the, that your faith may be approved. Some have said, and rightly so, that a faith that cannot be tested cannot be, cannot be uh, trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And the Lord allows and ordains testings to come into our life to test the reality of our faith and trust in Him. Will we trust Him in the midst of hardship? Sometimes we... Even as elders in the past, in the Philippines and other places, elders like to fix things. That's what they do. And sometimes elders have to be so very careful that they're not fixing something that the Lord wants broken. 
And that's, that always takes a lot of prayer. What do I mean by that? The Lord has brought a discipline into the life of a believer, brought a discipline into their life, and we come in and we fix it and ease the burden of it when the Lord wants them to come to Him in submission to Him and acknowledge Him in the midst of the struggle. Then we can come and help. That's a fine line. That's a hard thing to find. Where was I going? Oh, the approved faith. So the Lord is testing, and he's testing with the, with the desire to show you approved. To show that, yes, look, my child, I put him under this testing, and he's trusted me in it. Doesn't mean he, he's not still suffering, but he's trusting me in it. It's proving the reality of his faith. And we recognize, don't we, that the writers of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, the writer of James, the writer of all the different epistles, Paul, they are very much concerned with the behavior of believers. They're very much concerned with how believers behave. And why is that? Well, they're saved. Just do what you want to do. You know, you're saved anyway, so go ahead and enjoy your life. Do whatever you want to do because you're saved anyway. That's not the attitude that any of the apostles take, is it? They're constantly warning, constantly exhorting, constantly encouraging, constantly telling them to do this, follow this, find this. Why? Because they recognize that the genuineness of the faith will display itself in good works. The genuineness of a faith that is real will show itself in the works of the Spirit of God that He is producing in the life. You don't see those things? You begin to question the reality of the faith of the individual who professes faith. We're not the ones who are fruit inspectors, by the way. We're not called to be fruit inspectors going around and looking at everybody's life and saying, well, I don't see this and this and this, therefore they can't be saved. The Lord sees the heart and knows the heart. But he also tells us, by their fruit you shall know them. So there's evidence that will be there. And the Lord, in through times of testing, shows approved faith. And the cream rises to the top. I found in Connecticut a dairy that has unhomogenized milk. I love it. Because Joyce will tell you, all my life, when I get a thing of milk, I'm always shaking it. And she said, what are you shaking for? Well, I don't know. When I was a kid, we used to shake it. And it used to come, and the cream would be on the top, and you'd shake it. And I always shake it. And she always laughed at me. I found one I can shake. Because the cream rises to the top. And I have to shake it down every day. And the Lord is, through his testing and trial, bringing us through and rising us up strengthening us and encouraging us the genuineness of our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire though the testing of fire comes and burns away the dross burns away all the impurities of our life and although it's hard and it's hot and it's difficult the burning away of all of that dross in our lives by the times of testing and trial. And by the way, I think this is true. You can correct me later on. If you think it's not true, you'll be wrong. But you can correct me later on. But, but, but it's the idea. It's the idea that this testing that is by fire, though it's like gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. I forgot my thought. So it must have been wrong. <laughs> I honestly forgot my thought. It just It's old timers. What's that? What? No, that wasn't, wasn't even about that. It was something else all entirely different. Anyway, if it comes back, I'll share it with you in, in just a moment or two. That's embarrassing, but it's, it's old timers. So the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory 
at that time when Christ is revealed. You know, it's like oftentimes we want that praise, glory, and honor now. We live in a society that wants it now. You know, so please give me all the praise and glory and honor now because I, I, I really want it now. But he says, you know, you're going through hard times of testing. You're going through hard times of trial. And one day, it will be to praise, honor, and glory at the time when Christ is revealed. You willing to wait? Just keep going through the hardships of life. Not for the reward, but for the one who saved you. Not for the reward, but for the one who gave his life for you. We'll see that later when we look at redeemed. Obviously not today because it's already 10 after. So we haven't gotten to our quote yet. And then he goes on to say this. Whom having not seen, you love. Is that true in your life and in my life? Is it true? I have to be very careful of my phraseology because I oftentimes have said in the past, we've, we've fallen in love with the Savior. And I was correct, we don't fall in love. So I, I try not to say that phrase anymore. We are in love with the Savior. And we've never seen Him. But boy, we've experienced Him. I've not seen him face to face, but boy, I have and you have experienced him in your life. You've seen him work. You've heard him speak through the pages of his scripture. You know him whom to know is life eternal. And there's no greater joy this side of heaven than to walk with the Lord Jesus. And one day faith will give way to sight and we shall see him face to face. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face. Ah, that will be glory. Be glory for me. Looking to the glory, praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. We'll stop there. And then we'll move into the next passage and our introduction next week, and then we'll hopefully get through and into the, into the um, quote that we find in chapter 16. And remember, please, remember as we're reading this, as you maybe read it this week and go through it again this week to find all my errors, as you're going through And reading it through, remember that he is leading us now in these verses to this idea of obedience. He's leading us to this idea of obedience. This is all that you have in Christ. You have been begotten again. You have an inheritance in him. You have all of these things. You've been tested by by fire, if need be, for, for a little while. But it's all leading to what he's going to command. Because there's two imperatives that we're going to see as we go forward. There's two imperatives. Only two imperatives in this section. And I said only, but I, I think there's just these two imperatives that are in this section. And one of those imperatives is, be holy, for I am holy. Be holy. And that is a part of this whole obedience thing that he's leading us up to. Father, we give thanks for our Savior. Thank you for sending him into this world to save sinners like us. Father, we know and we recognize that without him, we were sad in case. We were on our way to a lost eternity without him. We know that. But you sent him into the world and you saved us. You redeemed us with his precious blood. You called us unto yourself and we believed. And Father, we are so very thankful. And now, if we are going through times of struggle and hardship, if we are going through times of of grievous trials that cause our hearts to be sorrowful. We recognize that we have a hope that the world does not possess. We have a hope that is sure and steadfast 
And we are looking forward to the day when we shall be with you forever. And this world will be done with. And we will be with you forever. Help us to have a passion for that promise. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.